Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, listeners, before we get to Sarah's interview today, I just want to mention to you that uh, there is a book out uh, that uh, Sarah and I have written. It's called Death by Podcasting. It's now available for pre-order. We've talked about it a little bit in our newsletter. We've talked about it on the podcast some, but now it is available for pre-order, and you can uh, you can get it uh, wherever books are sold. Um, it's, uh, well, let me thank Nora Gaskin here, the award-winning author of The Worst Thing, for her blurb about the book. Here's what she says. A romance writer... A suspense writer and a poet walk into a podcast studio. Bullets fly, poisons flow, knives slice the air. If you binged only murders in the building and are feeling withdrawal pangs, you need death by podcasting. It's the perfect pick-me-up. Thanks, Nora, for that blurb. We really appreciate it. Uh, Sarah had a fun time uh, writing this book together. We thought it'd be fun for two podcasters to write about uh, two podcasters who find out that uh, one of their author guests is going to kill them, but they don't know who or why. Anyway, check it out. Uh, it's out there. It's available. You support the podcast when you get it. Uh, appreciate you and uh, hope you enjoy the interview. Hey, readers and writers. Welcome to episode 362 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words and where reading and writing topics take center stage. I'm your co-host, Sarah Archer, and I'm here today with Michael Thomas Ford, author of Every Star That Falls, which is the long-awaited sequel to Michael's acclaimed YA novel, Suicide Notes. Every Star That Falls tackles its teen protagonist's journey to come to terms with his sexual identity and become his true self with both poignancy and humor. Michael writes for adults and young readers and has been recognized with numerous honors, including winning the Lambda Literary Award no less than five times. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, we're super excited to have you and to talk to you. Um, this is a wonderful book. And it's, as I mentioned, your follow-up to Suicide Notes, um, an novel that came out in 2008 and got a lot of wonderful responses from readers and wonderful reviews. Um, so why did you choose to return to this set of characters and why now? Why at this point in time? Well, that's an interesting question. And it says a lot about uh, how books are sold these days. So Suicide Notes came out 15 years ago. And uh, it didn't become a bestseller or anything like that, but it continued to sell very, very steadily for a long time, which is unusual for a young adult book. And a couple of years ago, uh, somebody at Barnes and Noble took an interest in the book and they made it part of their teen, I don't know what they call it, their teen reading program. And suddenly it became this big thing. And I started getting more and more mail and questions about it and it started getting picked up on social media like instagram and book talk and all of that sort of thing that did not exist when suicide notes first came out so we were getting a lot of mail saying what happened what happened what happens next and i had always said that i didn't want to do a sequel to the book because when people fall in love with characters they get ideas in their head about what happens to them when the book is over and when you write a sequel no matter what you do, someone's going to be disappointed. And I thought it was better to let Jeff, the main character, live however it was people imagined him living. But 15 years later, I realized there were a lot of new issues for LGBTQ young people that I wanted to talk about. And he was a perfect way to do that. 
and continuing his story would let me talk about those things in a way that a new character might not. So that's why. Yeah, it's so funny how the kind of life cycle of a book can be unpredictable like that. We actually have another author um, named Amber Smith, who's going to be coming on the podcast this season as well, who had sort of a similar experience where a book that she wrote years ago went back on the New York Times bestseller list recently because it kind of caught on through TikTok. Mm -hmm. Um, Now she's got a sequel coming out too. So you just never know where those things will go. You don't. And I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years and I, I never know what to expect when a book comes out. You really, apart from writing it, you have no control over what life it has when you put it out there. And it's just totally changed. We didn't have Instagram when Suicide Notes came out. We didn't have, I don't think we had Twitter. I don't remember. Um, We didn't have any of these things. And the fact that readers now control what, in, in large part, be, what becomes successful is really interesting to me because they're not being told what they should like anymore. They're not being told these are the best selling books and you should like them. They're saying, well, these are the books we like. We're going to tell you about them. And sometimes what publishers think is not at all what readers think. And that's been really interesting to watch as a writer. Yeah, that's so true. That's a great point. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, How much were you thinking about what readers would think when you were writing this as a sequel? Obviously, it's a little different than just writing a kind of one-off because you have to balance people who read and loved the first book and what they want versus people who are coming into this and um, aren't familiar with the story yet and trying to keep it fresh as well. Like, How did you sort of negotiate between those things? That was the hardest part. So uh, every star that falls starts the day that Suicide Notes ends. So in the books, there's no gap. But in my life and in real life, 15 years had gone by. So I'm a different person. The world is totally different. Uh, Readers are totally different. So at first it was very daunting. I did worry a lot about it. And then I thought, you know what? Just you're writing about the character. Just tell them what happens to the character. And then we would go back afterwards and retrofit things. Um, So for example, in Suicide Notes, there's no social media. There's no cell phones. There's none of that. Uh, Fortunately, that book is set entirely within... Uh, a psychiatric hospital where those things would not have existed. So that was great because I didn't have to explain why they didn't exist. And when Jeff gets out, he's now in a world where those things do exist and he uses them. So that was really fortunate. But yeah, that was hard. It was it was hard thinking, what about people who read it 15 years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was thinking that yesterday too. There are now people who will read them in in order one after the next and that's going to be a totally different experience than people who read suicide notes a long time ago and now pick it up right right i'm i'm waiting to hear from people about what that's like yeah yeah that would be interesting especially because obviously those people they might have been teenagers themselves at the time and now they're adults and how are they going to respond differently exactly yeah that's fascinating um and you, you write with humor. There's a lot of uh, great jokes in the book, but you're also covering some very serious issues, you know, things like mental illness and suicide, um, sexual and gender identity and homophobia and abusive relationships. I know that you um, also wrote a lot about the HIV, HIV AIDS crisis at a time when not as many people were. Um, do you feel a sort of 
sense of responsibility to these communities or to talk about issues like that in certain ways and and when kind of when you're making decisions about your writing? I absolutely do. So I was, I don't know, 14 or so when AIDS hit the news. I remember reading about it in Newsweek magazine that my father got. It was called GRID back then, gay-related uh, gay related immunodeficiency or something. And then I uh, moved to New York City when I was 20 in 1988. So that's you know right at the height of the AIDS crisis. And I ended up writing the first book for teenagers about HIV and AIDS, the first nonfiction book. And back then, that immediately marked me as the gay guy in YA. And back then, you, you couldn't be that person. It just wasn't. Once you wrote something gay, that's all you were in, in the world of children's books because it was just a different time. So I just decided my job as a writer, one of my jobs as a writer is going to be to chronicle what it has been like to grow up as a gay man in this particular time and in this particular place. And so I've always done that. All of my books that address these issues are specifically done for that reason. And particularly with YA books, I think it's important to write about what people who are kids now or teenagers now are experiencing. And the older, you know, the, the farther I get away from that in my own age, it does become different. But if I wrote about what it was like to be me in 1984, five, six, then it would be historical fiction, um, which has been done very successfully. You know, Bill Konigsberg did a wonderful book about what it was like for him being a teenager in New York City during the AIDS crisis. So it can be done, but it's in many ways, it's ancient history to our current readers. So I try to write for the current ones. Yeah, that's got to be hard when you're writing for young people, because I feel like youth culture changes so rapidly, like both in terms of pop culture and trends, but also, you know, the, the issues that they're thinking and talking about, the conversations they're having, the values that they have. Um, how do you kind of stay current with that for younger readers? Are you um, really consciously trying to make sure that your work feels fresh for a young audience or are you more drawing on your own experiences or is it kind of like a balance of the both? It's a balance. So for example, there are a lot of musical references in my books, but almost none of them are to real fans. I've made them up because I don't want to date thing unless there's a specific reason to use a song everybody knows. That's one thing. But most of the bands and songs and things like that, and even actors and movies in my books are made up. They're not people who are currently popular. And it's for that reason. The other thing they did, uh, which was very I found very funny, HarperCollins uh, used a sensitivity reader uh, for LGBTQ issues. And when my editor first told me, I was like, I've been gay for 55 years. I think I know what it is. He said, but you're not a 15-year-old gay man. And so they hired somebody. They got someone to read it for that very reason. And they were very, very useful. And they, they said, we, nobody would use this phrase. Nobody would use this word, that kind of thing. Um, because I'm not 15. You know, I don't. Pronouns. Yeah. So pronouns were not a thing when I was 15. Asking someone what pronouns they used was not 
common that it is it is now. Um, right, right. The the nuances of the perspectives, I'm sure, are different. Yes. Um, do you feel like the reactions you've gotten to this book have maybe been different than to the first book because we are in a different time and the cultural conversation yes. is evolved? 100%. There is one very specific incident that happens in Suicide Notes that got no attention when the book came out. Nobody mentioned it. Now, it's the one thing I am asked most often about by readers. Why did you do this? Why was it not handled in this particular way? And it's a very generational thing. It, it's something that would not have been handled back then the way it would be now. And that's been really interesting to watch, um, to see what modern I hate using that word, to see what current readers expect from characters and expect from us as people writing characters has been really intriguing. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. And I feel like having these two novels that you've written um, with a time gap, especially about issues that have evolved a lot, it's such a like interesting case study for that too and how publishing has changed and readers have changed and there's a lot that you can yeah from it, i'm sure there were the sensitivity reader and i got along very well uh she was fantastic we butted heads on one thing which i found really interesting one of the characters in every star that falls is a cub or a bear he's there's no one's really written about young men who grow up as as bears or identifying with the bear community, and I wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. When I got the manuscript back, one of the notes was, I don't think you should refer to this character's size. That may be seen as body shaming. When in fact, it was exactly the opposite. If you grow up as a young person who's bearish, and if people don't know what that is, it's, it's a gay man who is larger, you know, a larger man, you're not seen, and you don't see yourself in popular media. So I very specifically wanted to put that character in here. But her perspective was from a younger person who is used to saying, we don't comment on people's size. We don't comment on people's appearance. It could make them feel bad. Interesting. That was, that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. I guess a lot of that is just about sort of execution and how you write about things. Um, but yeah, I could see that. I guess I could see both perspectives on that. Um, there are obviously a lot of kind of serious issues that you're dealing with here. But like I said, you also incorporate a lot of humor and a lot of levity. Um, why do you choose to write that way? Is it just your natural voice? Do you think that there's a certain value in bringing levity when, when writing about serious subjects? I do. So it is my own way of approaching the world because... I realized very early on that if you let bad things and experiences and thoughts overwhelm you, it will just suck you down. Mm -hmm. And I have struggled with depression my whole life since I was a child. And that's just something that I experienced. And I realized if I can find something in here that makes me laugh, this will not overwhelm me. It, it will not have any power to overwhelm me. And I realize that not everyone deals with the world that way, but I do. And that's how Suicide Notes happened. My editor, who was a good 
friend, a longtime friend, and we'd worked together on a number of books, called me up and she said, you are one of the funniest people I know and you are one of the most depressed people I know. And I think you need to write a book that combines those things. Because I think there are people out there, especially young readers, who need to be told it's okay to laugh at terrible things. Not to make fun of them, but to laugh at them when they happen to you can be very, very helpful. So yeah, I I'm almost always approach my books that way because it's just a helpful uh, tactic for myself. Yeah, I, I love that balance in your writing. And I think that it makes it feel more real too because most people, we go through dark things, but we also like to laugh. And in one day you can have moments where you feel really down and depressed and when bad things happen and then also like funny or totally absurd things happen too. And that's just life has both. Um, so I think it makes your characters feel very real that they can kind of approach things from both perspectives. It's like, you know, it's like horror movies that combine humor. Like this, this person's going through this absolutely horrific experience, but then they make a joke. And as mm -hmm. the, as an audience member, it makes you take a breath and think, Oh, okay. I can deal with this too. Mm -hmm. It's that sort of thing. It just reminds you that, you have a choice. Like you can be overwhelmed by this or you can not be overwhelmed by this. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Um, I love that. Well, I do have some more questions for you, but I would also love to have you read us a little bit from the book. Do you have a sure. passage that you can share with our I do. This is one of my favorite passages. So the main character of both books is named Jeff. And uh, Jeff has now gotten out of 45 days in a psychiatric ward. And he's not sure what's next for him or how he's going to respond to the world now that he's an openly gay person. So he uh, decides to stop by a local card store because he wants to buy his best friend, who's a girl, uh, something to commemorate Valentine's Day. They're best friends, but they haven't seen each other in 45 days. And there's a lot of drama between the two of them. So this is Jeff going into the card store. Late or early, I look at the checkout person standing behind the counter who has just asked me this question. He looks to be about my age, my height, slight build, light brown skin and short black hair with a longer piece, dyed pink, that falls over his right eye. His other eye is a beautiful dark brown that makes me think of chestnuts, which is weird because I'm pretty sure I've never actually seen a chestnut and only know about them from that Christmas song about them roasting on an open fire. For what, I say. What, he says, looking a little startled. Late or early for what, I ask him. Sorry, he says, I didn't realize I said that out loud. He taps the middle finger of his left hand five times on the counter, moving his lips silently as he counts each tap. The nail on that finger, and only that nail, is painted black, and there's a big chip out of it, as if he taps it a lot, and some has flaked off. He takes a deep breath. That'll be 783. I hold out a $10 bill. Oh, he says, looking at the bill as if he's never seen one before. Cash. Wow. Uh, okay, I can handle that. He takes another breath and blows the air out through his nose. Then he takes the bill from me, holding it between two fingers so that it dangles like a leaf. As he opens the register drawer, drops the bill in, and makes change, I repeat, late or early for what? 
Oh, he says, handing me two ones and some coins. Well, for Valentine's Day, you know it was yesterday. He nods at the card and box of candy on the counter. They're both half price. I was just wondering if you forgot this year or are taking advantage of our post-VD sale so you're ready for next year. Got it, I say as he begs my purchases. Well, um, actually, I was kind of busy yesterday, so I didn't have time to pick anything up. He nods. I'm sure she won't mind, he says as he hands me my bag. Or he. They. He shuts his eyes and taps his finger on the counter again. I should just not talk. She, I say. Then for some reason I add, but she's just a friend friend, not a girlfriend. I'm gay. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. So this is the first time he said this to anybody outside of his therapy group. And this boy that he's saying it to turns out to be someone very important to him in the book. So this is one of my favorite moments when, when they finally meet and realize that they both have these kind of weird personality tics. Yeah, Chris is such a great character. Um, and even though they're not a protagonist, there's a lot of kind of layers that you get in reading about this person. I almost feel like you could do a spinoff for Chris if you ever feel inspired to <laughs> do a third book in this world. I would love that. I would really well, love I would, that. I, I would definitely be there to read it. They are definitely um, my favorite characters I've, I've come up with. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're a lot of fun to read about. Um, one of the things that was interesting to me in reading this, and you see this some um, with how Jeff looks at Chris, but also other characters in the book, is his perception changes about different characters as he he himself evolves or he learns new things. And I also feel like as readers, our perception of the characters changes too over time. Um, do you ever feel like as you're writing your characters that your view of the characters changes as you're writing them? Well, so something uh, particularly interesting, well, to me, particularly interesting happened writing this book. Um, I kept getting notes back from the editor and the reader saying, Jeff isn't responding to these things or reacting to these things very much, or we don't understand his reaction to this. And their comments made me mad because to me, he was responding perfectly normally. And then I suddenly realized, and this sounds weird, I'm 55 years old, that I've never realized this. Jeff is me. I knew that. Jeff is always me. And Jeff is responding the way that I do to things. And my husband finally said, Jeff is responding the way that somebody on the spectrum responds to things because he works with people. He said, and that's you. Like, I had, this had never occurred to me in 55 years that I respond on the spectrum, the autism spectrum, uh, and Jeff does too. And so it was, it was really weird to have written two books about this character who does this and not realize that I was writing about the way that I respond to things. So yes, it did change a lot. Um, because I would just write Jeff the, the way, you know, he responded normally to me, what I think of as normal behavior. But to somebody who doesn't respond to things that way, it was reading as um, kind of flat and unemotional. 
So that was a huge wake up, personal wake up moment for me. I mean, with this character. Yeah, that's amazing. I think that's one of the things that can be, um, it can be wonderful about writing, but also like one of the hardest things is sometimes you learn things about yourself that you didn't set out to learn yes. <laughs> or you reveal things about yourself that you didn't set out to reveal. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's really amazing. Um, well, this is something that you kind of referenced a little bit earlier, but I love the music in this book and the the band names you come up with, like uh, Glitter Glove, Molly Dreambox. <laughs> they have such wonderful names. Um, were any of them inspired by real bands? I know that you, you invented them, but um, were they inspired by real bands? And does music play any role in your writing? Do you do you listen yeah. to music while you write? It plays a huge role. So my last YA novel uh, was called Love and Curses. And it centers around a boy whose mother leaves him, but she leaves him a list of, I can't remember how many, 10, 10 or 15, the 10 or 15 greatest albums of all time. And they're real albums on there. And so he listens to them one at a time, trying to understand his mother. And that was a big thing for me, connecting music to this person's story. And in that case, I did use real bands and, and real albums because I wanted readers to go discover those those records. Uh, mm -hmm. In this one, they're all made up. I think they're all made up. I can't remember if there's any real ones in there. Uh, yes, they are based on real bands, um, kind of in general, like bands like Lolly Dreambox. I always picture as sounding very curish that kind mm -hmm. of music. Um, other ones, I think of Tegan and Sarah, uh, Blondie. But again, every reader responds to different music. So I didn't want them to have to say, oh, but I don't like that band. So I don't understand this reference. And so I would just make up ones. Yeah, well, and especially because um, this book is set, I guess, in 2007 is the setting, I believe. But then coming out I think or 2008. I always forget what year Suicide Notes came out. 2000 and yeah, somewhere around there, six or seven. Somewhere around there. Yeah. And then, but obviously coming out years later, I guess readers could also sort of put in their own references depending on what they like or what they're listening to or when they're reading the book because you're not yes. putting it down to specific bands. Exactly. Now, I would, I would love, and I'm still waiting for this to happen, I would love for some young person to start a band named after one of these and actually make these songs. Um, awesome. For my last book, Love and Other Curses, I did work with a musician, and I had written lyrics for all these songs in the book, and she actually wrote songs based on them which we were going to release as a record and never did. But I would love for something like that to happen. Yeah, that would be amazing. I would listen to that for sure. Um, well, well, thinking about kind of the variety of things you've written, it, you have such an impressive um, CV, I guess you could say, as a writer. Like you're very prolific. I think you've written, what, over 75 books, um, books for adults, for YA, middle grade, fiction, nonfiction, uh, grounded fiction like this one fantasy. Um, I think you even wrote a series of novels based on the Erie, Indiana TV series, which I loved as a kid. So <laughs> I have to geek out a little bit about that. But you've done so many different things. Have you ever found that to be challenging your career path as a writer? Like, do you feel any pressure from publishers or readers to kind of stick to one thing? Yes, I don't. Well, I don't feel pressure. Everyone has always been happy to let me do it. The problem uh, from a career standpoint 
Uh, well, the good thing from a career standpoint is that you always have work because you can move from when, when one thing in publishing slows down, you move to the other thing. Publishing is cyclical, so, you know. The bad thing is you don't ever become known for one thing. Like, you don't become known in YA. You don't become known in adult books. You don't become known in middle grade books. You don't become known for mysteries or, or whatever these things are. Uh, because those people have to put out a book every year or every whatever in order to stay current. So yeah, you, you it's it's weird. It's both good and bad from a career perspective. From a personal perspective, it's fantastic. I get to write for all these different uh, audiences and different kinds of books. Yeah, yeah. I guess there are, there are pros and cons to each, but um, I think it's great to be able to have the freedom to write um, from different different parts of yourself and different sides of your brain, I guess, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I have uh, friends who are very, very successful in specific genres and they're, they're enormously grateful for that success. But sometimes they say, oh, I have to write another whatever. I have to write another book in this series and I'm just so tired of this series or I'm tired of writing about elves or I'm t- whatever it is. Um, I really wish I could do what you do and just write something different. And everyone's all writers are different. That's very true. Well, looking back over uh, your specific writing path and the varied career that you've had so far, if you could go back to the beginning when you were a younger writer and give yourself one piece of advice um, that you think would have helped along the way, what would you want to tell your younger writer self? I would have. Well, it's what I tell all writers. If you focus on success, if you focus on money and selling books and being on the New York Times list and these things you associate with success, you are very likely going to be miserable because these things don't happen very often and they don't happen to very many people. You have to define what's going to make you happy by the writing. You have to decide what I'm going to be fulfilled by putting these books into the world and getting responses from readers because you have no control over whether you become successful. And nobody likes to hear that because we tell people if you just work hard enough, if you keep at it, you're going to be successful. And that's not always true. Uh, you, it's not a nice feeling to think that you're not in control of what happens to you. But all you can do as a writer is write your book. And then what happens to it is up to the universe or whoever or whatever. That's what I wish someone had told me. Because I really thought there was a a path. I thought there was, if you do A, B, C, and D, you are going to become this. And that doesn't happen. Not usually. Yeah, there's no sort of... uh recipe for being a successful writer it's not like being a a doctor or lawyer or something where you get a specific degree and then you kind of just move to the next step it's so different for everyone it's so different and also don't i don't want to say don't write for your audience because you do have to consider it but don't write to make other people happy because it's not going to make you happy even if you make a bunch of money doing it you're not going to be happy and i have this conversation a lot with artists of all kinds say I did this record or I did this book or I made this movie because I knew it would be successful but why am I unhappy about this well because you did something that doesn't fulfill you 
Yeah, that's that's such great advice um, and something that I know for me and a lot of writers, I, I try to remind myself every day. Um, well, that kind of wraps up our time for today, but thank you so much for being here, Michael. You have such a fascinating uh, journey as a writer and, and a great perspective on writing and publishing. Um, and I definitely recommend that everyone goes and checks out Every Star That Falls. It's a wonderful book. Um, thank you for sharing it with us. And uh, listeners, thank you for being here with us too. And until next time, read on and write on.